Well, I am so glad that everyone could be here uh, through the month of February as we're talking mostly about having stronger marriages, stronger relationships. Now, I said this, um, if you keep up on Facebook or follow us on Facebook, sometimes I'll put a video out on Wednesday to kind of say the things that I couldn't fit into my sermon, and, and I don't think you have to be necessarily married to make sense of all of these and to help these particular goals um, bless your life. They don't have to just be relationship goals, they can be goals for who you are. Uh, for instance, last week we talked about the, the goal of being Christ-centered. Well, yes, it's good to have a Christ-centered marriage, but before you can be, have a Christ-centered marriage, you've got to be a Christ-centered person. And so today, I think it applies just the same. Now, as we talked about uh, last week about having a Christ-centered life, it's simply that what that means is that both husband and wife have this idea that Christ is kind of the center of everything they do. Their entire lives revolve around who Jesus is and who he's called us to be, because this idea that religion is like this sidecar on our life, it's this extra thing that we do, it's like a hobby, that's really a modern invention. When you read the stuff out of the New Testament, those people, when they, when they were following God, it meant their entire life revolved around who God called them to be and who he wanted them to be. It wasn't this thing they did some of the time or thought about when they had a moment to stop and think about it. It was absolutely everything for them. And so that's what it means when we say we're going to be Christ-centered. It means that how we treat other people, how we parent our kids, the words we speak to other people with, how we just do everyday life should be determined by who Jesus wants us to be and trying to be like him. And as we closed out last week, I just gave one simple, like, to-do to all the marriage people, and it was simply to start praying together, if you don't already. And the reason is because there's a, a shocking statistic that was discovered that found that couples who take their faith very seriously and pray together, they only have a divorce rate of less than 1%. I mean, that's like nothing. That's virtually no divorce rate. It's, it's as close to divorce-proofing a marriage as you can get to invest in your relationship with Christ into your marriage. And one way you can do that is by praying together. Now today, we're going to look at a number, the second relationship goal, which is to be mission-minded or mission-driven. And what this means is that husbands and wives need something bigger than themselves as a goal for everyday life. A mission in front of them that they can pursue holding hands, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, something that they can walk towards, a purpose that is greater than themselves that they can accomplish together. Now again, you can see how as an individual, this is something else that is good for you. You don't have to be married to have a, a life mission, something that gives you a purpose and a reason to get out of bed every day. But the reason why sharing a mission is so good for a marriage is because it has the power to bring extraordinary unity to a relationship. One of the greatest tragedies you'll see in uh, modern marriages are couples who are together but not really united. Like uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but it's like there's, their lives are kind of moving in parallel paths that don't touch very often. And I've seen this go a couple different ways. Okay, one way you'll see this is couples that they don't they don't really work together in life. He's got his plan, she's got her plan, he's got his idea of how things should be done, how money should be spent, how kids should be raised, and that kind of thing, and she has her own views, and there's a lot of conflict between these two different perspectives of these two people that are living in the same house, that are married, made all these wonderful vows in front of family and friends, but their lack of unity creates a lot of hostility, and you see this, I think, honestly, I think this type of marriage is the kind of, that you see mostly on like TV shows and sitcoms. And it usually plays out in that the husband's always an idiot and the wife's always mad. 
And I, I don't love that because it's like, why can't we ever have a picture of a really good relationship sometimes on these TV shows? And, and they have glimpses of that, but for the most part, it's just a guy being dumb and a wife getting mad at him and treating him like he's one of the kids because he acts like one of the kids. And their, their ideas, their philosophies about life together, they don't share any goals. They're just separate. They're, they're doing life sort of together, but not really. And there's hostility that shows up in the mix. Another way I've seen this play out is couples who have kind of this parallel lives thing, but they've reached this weird place of peace about it. And I usually see this in older couples who have been married a while because the longer you're together and the older you get, you just don't have the energy to fight all the time. If you're going to stay together, like something, it's just, you just can't, you don't got the energy for that, especially if there's kids involved. It's like, I just can't fight all the time. And so what I usually see when the couples that are lacking unity but are still staying married, they've sort of divided to the point where they don't really ha- make decisions that are really affecting the other person anymore. And so they'll divide their lives up. Um, if you've ever seen um, kids who share a room, I've only seen this in TV shows because I never had to share a room with a brother. I was lucky that way. But like they kind of like just get fed up and so they put a line of tape down the middle of the room. It's like, fine, you don't touch my stuff, I won't touch your stuff. Like, that's the agreement, you know? And so that's kind of like how people have handled their marriage. And so it's like, I have my money, you have your money. So we don't ever have to fight about spending money because you can spend all you want and it's not my money, that's fine. Okay? You have your bills to pay, I have my bills to pay. You have your responsibilities in the household. You know, sometimes it's, okay, you get the kids' doctor's appointments done and haircuts and stuff, and I'll do punishments, and I'll do, you know, sports practices. And they just kind of divide it up so that their lives really don't touch in any meaningful way that's going to create conflict. And, and I just think that we were meant for more than that. And when you look at the picture of marriage in Scripture from the earliest point, it was meant to be this united thing. In Genesis, it says the two shall become one flesh, meaning you share one life. That means you are bonded at the deepest possible levels. We weren't meant to have these parallel paths that that we kind of sort of do life together, but we're basically glorified roommates. It was more than that. And so I believe for husbands and wives, we were meant to share our lives together. And I truly believe um, that having like something out there that holds you two together Having, having, having goals and missions that can hold you two together. I think that's one of the reasons why Abby and I have a strong marriage. Um, you know, I'm not saying we do everything right by any means. If she walks in, you can just ask her later. <laughs> but, but one of the, and here's the thing. When we got married, nobody said, now you guys got to have a mission. What's your mission? Because I would have been like, oh, you love each other. Because we just want to be happy forever. Like, I would have said something like that because I, I'd never thought of this. But through a, a series of events, we have actually kind of always had some sort of mission or goal that we were working together on throughout our whole marriage. We learned very early on that money fights and money issues are the number one cause of divorce. So we thought, well, let's figure this out so we don't have to spend, you know, the next 50 years mad at each other about money. And so we've always kind of put our heads together on that. I remember before our oldest was born, um, we already had one kid that we kind of took on in junior high, but it was like, this is the first kid we were going to have, like, fresh out of the box, you know. This is our brand new, we got to start from scratch. Okay, so, Abby, I remember we were at Wendy's, of all places, after church on a Sunday. I was eating a Baconator, and Abby and I sat down, and we listed, okay, what kind of parents do we want to be? Like, what, do we, what, what, kind, of, what kind of traits do we want to be as parents? Um, what, what things do we want to, hopefully, over time, pass on to our kids? What virtues do we want to lift up and hopefully instill in their lives? And I don't remember that 
I don't know if I remember that because it was a sweet moment in our relationship or because there was a Baconator present, but either way, memory made. And so we've kind of always had these things where it was like, let's put our heads together, let's build a plan. Okay, this is something that we both have a shared goal on, now let's work towards it together. We've just always had something like that in our marriage. And I think it's one of the main reasons why we don't really get into huge fights like a lot of people do. I mean, she's never thrown anything at my head, and I've never slammed a door. I have slammed doors, but not because of her. Um, but, but we've never done any of that stuff, mainly because I think we were, we've always been so united as a team, walking arm in arm toward a shared mission. And as you get into the New Testament and you start reading the commands for husbands and wives, they often get grossly misused. And, and I, I just think as you read them and you give them an honest fair understanding of what these verses meant in their context 2,000 years ago to the people they were written to, you start to see that the emphasis is on an incredible level of teamwork that was very uncommon at that point in time. That, that a relationship at home uh, with, among family, that relationship of a marriage, it was meant to be one of unity and cooperation. And to us now, in our me too focused culture where you know we really have lately been trying to really champion the voices of women in our culture right now that's like oh yeah that's obviously how it should be but when you think back 2000 years ago to the world these people were living in to say that men and women should be equals that they should be partners in any endeavor was actually uh, pretty well ludicrous because it was a man's world men were always in charge men were always the authority figures they were always the rulers and in marriage husbands always had the ultimate authority um, women weren't even really allowed to testify in court because they were, they were deemed too emotional to give a proper, accurate representation of what had happened. You know, they thought women were going to be too busy clutching their pearls and swooning to give an accurate representation of, of something you know, exciting that they saw happen. Like, oh, I saw him run, hit, hit that guy. And I was like, oh, you can't be trusted because you're a woman. Like, really, people, really, like, women were not trusted in that society in a whole lot of uh, capacities. And, and as we go throughout the New Testament and you see these words of Jesus, though yes, a lot of people still misuse them for bad, they show that, that there's an, a radical elevation of women and equality in the New Testament that many of us don't even understand, especially within a marriage relationship. Now today we're only going to look at one little old verse, and it's uh, written by the guy who was probably Jesus' closest friend during his three-year ministry on earth. It was written by a guy named Peter. Uh, Peter wrote two letters that are a part of our New Testament now, and we're very creative, and so we call them First and Second Peter. Like I don't, like I don't know who named. I mean, it makes sense, okay? Peter wrote it. That's fine. And so we're going to be in First Peter. We're going to be in chapter three, verse seventeen. First Peter, chapter three, verse seventeen. And and in the section we're looking at, Peter has been talking all about authority. And as he's talking about authority, what you'll notice is he's only talking to people under authority. People who are, are not in charge of really anything, but people who are at the mercy of those who are overseeing them. And so first he talks to people, he says, hey, you need to respect and obey your government. And 2,000 years ago, to a Jewish person, if this was written to somebody who lived in Israel at all, this would have been like a, are you kidding me? Why would I obey the government? The relationship between the Roman authorities and the Jewish people, it was not good. 
to say the least. I mean, they were, I mean, the Romans were always coming in and, and trying to squash the rights of the Israelites. The Israelites were constantly uprising and trying to start these fights to throw off Isra- or, uh, Rome's rule over them. And so they were constantly fighting. There was a lot of bloodshed in those seasons. And so for someone to say, hey, those of you that are under the authority of Rome, you guys need to respect the government. They'd be like, are you kidding me? That doesn't sound at all like anything they want to do. And then he talks to house servants. These are people who, you know, you came in, someone came into your house, they got down and washed your feet. And that doesn't sound super gross to all of us, but they lived in, in a world where they walked on dirt roads in their sandals if they even wore shoes. And the only other thing that walked the same roads as them was all the animals. And if you've ever been in a parade and you saw a horse, what do horses do when they get on a road and they start walking around? Every other animal does the same thing. And so these people had dirt and that mushed in between their toes. And these were the people that had the job of getting down on their hands and knees and cleaning the guck out from between people's toes. They had the lowest job. And oftentimes these people were slaves. And in that society, if you got yourself in a huge amount of debt, you could sell yourself into slavery under a person. They would pay your debt and then you would work off your debt to that person either until it's paid off or for the rest of your life. And so these people couldn't run away when the boss got bad, couldn't get, leave if the boss got abusive. They just had to sit and take it. And he says, hey, if you guys are, are servants, you need to be respectful to your master. And then he talks to wives and how wives should conduct themselves as Christian women in these relationships where in that world they were seen as under the authority of their husband. And so he's constantly talking to people who were under authority. But in this group, as he's going about on this whole thing about authority, he only talks to one group, one group that has authority. One group that in that society was in a position of authority, and it was to husbands. And here's what he says. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, at that point in time, The husband had all the rights, all the cultural nudgings to use his authority to make his wife do whatever he wanted. The husbands were the ultimate, you know, he was the man of the house and they had all the say, right? And, And oftentimes guys would be overbearing, they would, you know... Basically, in that society, if, if there was anybody who was stronger and anybody who was weaker, the stronger person was like, I can just make you, who weaker person, do whatever I want. That's how the world worked. Might made right. And Peter steps in, and he reads this verse, and there's a lot of stuff in here that gets misused. Like, for instance, some of you probably, like, cringe when you saw a weaker vessel. You're like, wait a minute. No, I don't like that, but we'll, hold on a minute. We'll get there. Okay? But, there's, but he's talking and saying, hey, that's how everybody else does it. You know, everywhere else you look in this world that we live in, guys are in charge of everything. Women are disregarded. And in fact, guys could, um, there was a common even Jewish teaching at that point in time that said, if you got tired of your wife burning dinner, you could just divorce her and get a new wife. If she did anything that didn't make you really overly happy, you just divorce her and find somebody who does make you happy. Sounds a lot like our culture today, how people kind of shut off. I, I saw a celebrity the other day got married, and then it was like 18 days afterwards they were separated. It's like, okay, well... I don't know what happened, but, but, still, but that's just kind of like this revolving door. Like any reason that we want to split, just we'll just split. And that was kind of the society. But again, it was only from the perspective of the husband. Wives were just kind of stuck. They couldn't do anything, couldn't leave, had nowhere to go, regardless of the treatment by their husbands. And so he's saying, yes, the other world, the rest of the world is like this, but not in God's economy. 
God's economy is absolutely going to be a different thing. Women aren't the underlings. We're going we're gonna to elevate women to a different kind of level than you've ever seen before. And so the way that he does this, the way that he kind of helps them kind of figure this out, is he says, he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And that literally means, in the New Testament that was written in Greek, it literally says, in the knowledge. Live with your wives in the knowledge. Okay, what knowledge? Well, all the way through First Peter, he's basically trying to tell Christians, the world's doing one thing, we're in Jesus, we're, we're doing something different. The world does life this way, but we're over here separated. He says, we're here to be a holy priesthood, a holy people. The word holy means set apart, different than everything else. Obviously not not normal, but something elevated and special for God's use. He's like, we have to be different. We're not going to do, I don't care what everybody else is doing. The world has to be different because God is doing something different in and through us. And so because of the sacrifice of Jesus and because God has called us apart to be different and to serve a purpose, we are going to live differently, husbands. You're going to treat your wife according to that knowledge of Christ. And he gives two examples of how you're going to do that. One, you're going to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Now, that has been, again, abused and misused. I even read one commentary um, where it said, you know, the reason why women were called weaker here is because their women brains just weren't as good as our man brains. And I read that, I was like, boy, that's an old commentary. You could not, you can't, I'm surprised it's still in my, like, library, my digital library that that's okay that even, like, I'm surprised somebody didn't come along and, like, wipe that out somewhere along the way. Like, you just can't, that's just not okay, you know? And obviously, all studies show that you know, intelligence varies from person to person. Gender hasn't have a whole lot of, to do with that. And so, but, but the idea here is not about your intelligence. It's not a, a classification of saying women are lesser or worse or, or worthless. It's simply acknowledging a fact that I think most people would sort of be okay acknowledging is that as a whole, guys tend to be physically stronger than women. That's all that this is saying. It's saying guys in that world, again, it was about who was stronger, who, you know, you could say what you wanted to to anybody as long as you thought they weren't going to be able to beat you up. Like, you could do whatever you wanted in that world. Again, might made right. And so he's saying, no, what everybody else is doing is saying, oh, my wife's weaker than me. I can just make her then do whatever I want. He's saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. You see a weaker person, you don't over, overbear on them. No, you elevate them. And we see this trend all throughout the New Testament as Jesus is constantly showing that God loves to take people that the world has written off, and he elevates them. That God loves to show honor to people the world finds dishonorable or lesser. And so this is one of the ways where he starts to say, okay, life's different now. Your women aren't somebody to, to you just like kind of run them over and make them do what you want. No, you're going to elevate them and treat them with honor and respect because of the fact that you're stronger. You're not there to, over, to, to run them around because you're stronger. You're there to live, le, uh, lead them up and elevate them and make them something better than they are to a better status. And the second thing he says, he says, because your wives are heirs with you, co-heirs, meaning on a spiritual level, you guys are the same. Jesus died for both of you. Salvation is for both of you. You will spend eternity together in heaven. And so there is no difference, spiritually speaking, between men and women. They have equal value and worth in God's sight. And so Christians are called to treat their wives as co-heirs, as equal spiritual beings, not as a glorified housekeeper and nanny, as was has often been the time at various points in our culture. And so he's calling them. You guys got to be different. 
And you might say, okay, wait, what were we talking about? Mission-driven, where did we get off track here on, you know, elevating women's rights? Well, again, in that world, there was no shared anything other than children. We share because women didn't have a say in the house. They couldn't own property. If, if the husband died, sh- they didn't get inheritance. They just had to live under their kids. It was, it was just a crazy world. And so this is saying, no, no, no. There's a teamwork here. There's a partnership that needs to exist here. And then Peter even tosses out a scary consequence for Christians who don't want to live this way and want to do what the world has been doing. He says, your prayers might be hindered if you don't live this way. If you don't elevate your wife, if you don't live with her as an equal in your house, then God might not be listening to your prayers as such. And that's a terrifying thought, an incredibly terrifying little sentence to show that this responsibility to elevate our wives to equal status is an incredible, incredible thing. And again, in our modern culture, we're all thinking, yeah, that's how it should be. But 2,000 years ago, this was like culture shock for everyone involved. And so what we learn is that God doesn't want us to be normal. He doesn't want us just to do what everybody else is doing. He wants us to be elevated in a way that reflects his design for the world and his love for each and every human being. And in marriage, that means being true, honest, equal partners, having a mission that we can pursue together to live for him and show his love and glory to the world. And Peter is calling for this incredible unity and relationship between a husband and wife that was absolutely unheard of 2,000 years ago. And having a shared mission, working together in tandem as you go through life, that has this incredible power to take both your relationship with God and your relationship to each other to incredible depths in ways that not a lot can. Having a shared mission can ensure that you don't accidentally somewhere along the way split off into parallel paths and you're just living life together. And so if you're a married individual, here's the thing you and your spouse have to figure out. And if you're a single person, this is what you have to figure out for yourself. What's your mission? What's the thing that's going to hold you to a higher calling than yourself? Because honestly, what kills a lot of marriages, I think I hinted on this last week, is, is what we do all the time. We make everything about us. That's what we do. We're selfish people. Everybody has this tendency to make it about me. Poor me. You're not doing what I want. Life's not what I want it to be. Everything needs to be about me and making me happy. But, but having a mission, it pulls you outside of yourself. And it focuses you on something greater than just your tiny little life. And you might be thinking, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to tell me I need a volunteer. He's going to start turning this into a volunteer plug for church. And let me just say, maybe, maybe that, maybe you find a place in the church you can serve together, and maybe that's an element of it. But again, remember what I said at the beginning. Our relationship with God, how we live for him, it's not meant to be contained just in this one hour a week thing that we do. It's meant to be this thing that guides your entire life. So what is an area where you are passionate, where you can both, again, arm in arm, serve together, have a mission that drives you onward? Um, as I mentioned, one of the ones we kind of got a hold of earlier to try to get our heads together on was money. And not just so we can be rich and not, and, you know, and not fight about it, but it actually turned into this idea of like, how can we take this financial area of our life and live for Christ and serve people and be generous the way Christ is generous with us? And so we have kind of this goal that we just want to be generous. We talked about that before we got married, that we always just wanted to be generous. Finances in every other area of our life, we want it to be that way. So that means that we put our heads together and we say no to a lot of things that we want to say yes to. I, I've been in this little kick lately where uh, I'm like, Abby, you know what we, we really need? A TV that's about three inches bigger than the one we have now. 
you know, we have a 1080p, but they got 4K now. And I know I won't be able to tell the difference from the, how far away I sit on the couch, but if I want to sit like a foot away from the TV, I will really notice the difference. Like, I, I don't know. It's like, and the color ranges are better. I'll bet it, the picture is pristine. You know, we probably need that. Do we need that? Absolutely not. Our TV's functioning fine. It's great. It's got a decent viewing angle. It's all the good things you want. But, but there's those ways it's like, no, we can't do that. Why? Because we have a mission. We got something bigger that we're working towards than just the entertainment factor at this particular moment. And, and we don't always, excuse me, we don't always do, do great on that. We don't always succeed in saying no. I'll be honest, we're not nearly as generous as we could be. Eating out is our downfall. I don't know what it is, but I just have never made anything that tasted as good as something I could buy somewhere else. <laughs> I don't know if it's the fact that there's dishes associated with it. I don't know what it is, but I have never made anything that was as delicious as a fresh, hot, adequately salted McDonald's fry. <laughs> Those things, I, don't, I know that's like low-level cuisine, but it tastes so good, and I don't, I don't know why. But, but so that's what, if that's what's going to get us, food is going to like make us miss our goals a little bit there. But, but we wanted to be generous. We just want to be generous. And so that means having margin in our budget, creating margin in our finances so that there is, we want to be generous to the church. We want to always be careful that we can have enough to be faithful givers to our church. And then we want to have more so that as we spot needs that exist, and Abby's always going to be the one that spots needs, by the way, because I'm the one that's like, mm, the budget doesn't match up, and I'm the nerd. But she's always like, this person needs help, and I'm like, ah, but the budget. And so it's good that I've married her. And so when we see someone that is, has a need, we can meet that need. We can try to help them. Someone needs meals for a while. We can give them some meals. We try to do that kind of stuff so that we can be generous. Again, not because we, we think we're awesome, but it's because, man, Christ was so generous in his love that he poured out for us on the cross that we want that love to change how we live every single day. And um, we've tried to spread that out into more than just our finances. Um, we've had three separate people live with us for an extended period of time in, our, in one of our spare rooms that we've had. I don't know how, how many months have we lived together alone. Have we any? Like two? Two, three, four, someone like, like we had a, one of her, uh, her college friends moved to the area, needed a place to stay while she found an apartment. Come on in. Like that, like, like from day one, like we were married and she came in and then she moved out and then Alex came in and then Alex went off to college and Abby's sister moved in for a little bit and then she left and then she came back and it was just, we've just had people living with us and then we had kids and that just really messed everything up and <laughs> Now you can't even go to the bathroom alone. It's all kinds of crazy in our house now. And so it's just like, but it was one of those like, yes, this is weird. And yes, people look at us like, why would you want someone to live with you? Why would you want someone in your house when you come back from your honeymoon? I don't know. We just, we're trying to be generous. And we want to live that out as best we can. And so you got to find what's one of your missions. That's one that we've kind of centered around. And again, the bigger mission is because we want to live like Jesus has called us to live. We want to love like Jesus has loved us. But we can break that up into smaller things. And for us, that's tried to be generosity. Um, another one is parenting. I mean, if there's one place where two adults that are married can get on the same page, hopefully, it's around kids. Figure out what you want for your kids. How can you be better parents so that you can hopefully lead them to be uh, little humans who love Jesus 
and can hear about the love of Jesus. Um, maybe you enjoy sitting in the service and you like it that moment when we watch it, have all the little kids file out and you think, man, this is awesome that these kids are here to, to hear about Christ and stuff. Maybe that's something that you can both want to say, hey, we'll serve in that. We'll help. We'll go back into, into Connect Kids every so often and, and meet these little people where they are and, and try to get to know them and so that we can help them love Jesus. Maybe that's one of the missions that you can absorb and own for yourself and to help guide you through life. But I do think whatever the mission might be, whether it's serving here or doing something in your life, being a mission-minded, mission-driven couple, it adds extraordinary unity like few things can because it, it causes you to stop whining about yourself, thinking about yourself, and gives you a grander view of the world and understand that God put you here for a purpose that is bigger than yourself. And there's tons of ways that you can partner together, but it's up for you, to you to decide what's your mission. What's it going to be? And I think you've got to have some place in your life where you're sharing a mission, where you're hand in hand doing something that is bigger than yourself. Don't just live in the same house with separate agendas, separate goals. Remember, we are all to live daily in the knowledge that as Christians, we are called to live differently than the world. If our marriage looks like everybody else's marriage, then we've messed up. If we look weird, then it's like, oh, maybe we're doing something right. Now, we got to be careful because there's wrong kinds of weird, too. But, but if we're weird, at least we don't, that's not instantly a bad thing. We want to be a good kind of weird that's different than our world. But we're not going to live by our feelings. We don't want to live by just what our mom and dads have done and pass that along to us. We don't want to uh, just do what everybody else does around us. We just want to live as God has called us to intend, uh, live as God has intended us to live, even if that means that we stick out like a sore thumb in a culture of married people. But he calls us as husbands and wives to be one flesh, to have lives that are intertwined and equal in our partnerships. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to have a mission that is shared that drives you forward each and every day. So you got to decide. I can't answer the question for you. What is your mission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you give us these grand missions to follow and that it's not even our idea so that we can brag about it. It's not even um, something that we do because we had a great idea and that, and that we have this great strength and we're so virtuous. No, we're simply just trying to do what you have already done for us. We're simply just trying to reflect who you have already uh, been for us, the love you've already shown us in Jesus. And so I just pray that whatever mission that we take on as couples and as individuals, that it would be to reflect in some way to the world the way you have loved us through Christ, whether that's generosity, whether that's pouring into younger generations, whether it's helping people who have kind of gotten beaten down by a season of life, whether it's lifting them up and giving them honor so that they can get back on their feet and, and, and do so in a way that's respectful and full of dignity. I just pray, Father, that whatever it is, whatever the mission we embrace, that it would be to reflect your goodness and your love to the world that it would, be, it would be an outflow from the fact that we are Christ-centered, that we stand every moment of our lives on the salvation that has been shown to us through Jesus. And thank you again for all that you've done for us and all the ways that you've kind of united our lives together as a church family. I, it, it's just great to have this people that can come together every week and just lean on each other and, and pray together and sometimes cry together and laugh together and try as hard as we can and fail to clap on beat together. We are trying, Father, to love you, and I just love that we have people to walk through this life together, and it's such a blessing. So thank you for each and every person that is here. I don't think you bring people here by accident, but 
I think, Father, that you, uh, you've brought us here for a purpose so that we can live for you and that we can help each other do the same. Thank you again for all that you do and all the ways you've blessed us. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.